Good evening to you. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful inland northwest of the USA. Today is the second day of January and the new year is 2021. I'm going to jump into where we left off last time, but I will mention before I do this deep dive that we were discussing how T lymphocyte metabolism was regulated from a top-down and a bottom-up level of activity. The bottom-up meaning that the metabolic pathways help synchronize the eventual differentiation and poise of the various subsets of T lymphocytes as they relate to their function. Of course, their function is to clear tumors and also to deal with invading microorganisms. And of course, the T lymphocyte community also generates a series of signaling sec sequion that end up regulating microglia, macrophages, and other antigen-presenting cells like dendri dendritic cells, as well as the entire B cell uh, lymphocytic programming that occurs with acquired immunity. So the T cells are really the most uh, significant of all the different cell types in the immune system because they function with the innate immune system and with the acquired immune system of which they are a part. And we've been talking about T lymphocytes off and on for over a year. Uh, I Obviously, I find them a pretty fascinating subject, but more importantly than my fascination is the fact that the biochemical principles that um, T lymphocytes function under include all of metabolic pathways, all of gene expression, signal transduction, as well as membrane lipid interactions. Remember that I'm a lipid biochemist, so I key in on that when I uh, find a good resource and the immune system is just excellent for studying lipid metabolism and lipid biochemistry because it covers all the potential pathways and it also deals with membrane-membrane interaction, um, which is often left out of the discourse of most biomedical research, although it is fundamentally important, as I mentioned on uh, New Year's Day. So uh, I'm just going to jump into this where we were almost last time. Remember, we were talking about a paper published in a journal called Biological Open, 2019 paper. And this is what this paper uh, gives us so far. <clears throat> it tells us there's a critical role for the acid sphingomyelinase in the regulation of trafficking of pomidylated proteins. These researchers found that the inactivation of this enzyme, we, we'll just call ASM, caused a number of proteins, including SNAP23, LIN, and then the G-alpha GTPases, uh, as well as CD59, to disappear from the plasma membrane. And at the same time, this loss of ASM promoted the accumulation of those same pomidylated proteins intracellularly. And they used the SNAP23, which is part of the endocytic endosomal system, as sort of their biomarker. And they showed that ASM deficiency led to SNAP23 accumulation in the Golgi. 
And that could be phenocopy by treating cells with palmitylation inhibitors or by mutation of the palmitylase enzyme itself, specifically for the SNAP23. Now, they also found similar effects with another one of these endosomal proteins called LYN, L-Y-N. What they also want to say is that it, they're, they're arguing that ASM deficiency could cause a defect in the palmitylation itself of those two proteins, SNAP23 and LYN, and that could account for why the, there is a dysfunction in Golgi transport. But their subsequent work suggested that ASM, that is the acetylphenylmyelinase, actually didn't affect the palmitylation reaction. Uh, moreover, it affected um, perhaps indirectly the trafficking coming out of the trans-Golgi network. So here are a couple of key points. ASM deficiency blocked the trafficking of receptor protein tyrosine kinases out of the Golgi to the plasma membrane. ASM is required for the selective transport of certain cargo from a specific subdomain in the Golgi. The lipid microdomains of sphingomyelin and cholesterol, of course, are proposed to act as a sorting platform from the Golgi to help proteins transport ultimately to the plasma membrane and presumably elsewhere in the cell. Ceramides in the Golgi membrane can provide a favorable lipid microenvironment to allow palmitylated proteins to interact with the Golgi transport machinery, although uh, this case is to facilitate the transport carrier formation rather than the sorting per se. So then find defects in sorting. <clears throat> ASM-dependent detergent-resistant membrane proteome analysis therefore identified many ASM-regulated proteins involved in numerous processes of vesicular transport. Uh, these included the SNARE uh, pro uh, proteins, as well as members of the RAB GDPases, which again are very significant plasma membrane proteins for trafficking in and out of cells. So that's basically where we were last time. So more on this in more detail, obviously. ASM protein ceramides are present on plasma membrane and actively growing cells, including T lymphocytes. High level of ASM and ceramides are present on the plasma membrane of actively growing glioblastoma cells. So not just found in naturally occurring T lymphocytes or in, for example, microglia, they're also found in cancer cells. In fact, externally added ASM on the extracellular leaflet of a plasma membrane is sufficient to regulate all intracellular Golgi transport of palmitylated proteins in cell culture. These are mammalian cells of no particular interesting derivative. Now, ASM, this is the sphingomyelinase, can produce ceramides in situ, of course, within the plasma membrane. And because of their endomembranous continuity, this alteration in membrane domain dynamics is of course gonna be communicated to the Golgi, which begins recruiting and then translocating palmitylated proteins to the plasma lemma membrane. The ASM acts as an outer leaflet, plasma membrane, sorting and converting mechanism, thus taking sphingomyelin and converting them to ceramide and phosphonylcholine. Indeed, that's where the sphingolipids reside. Ceramides, therefore, are homochemically associated hydrophobic moieties. 
that reside on both leaflets of the plasma membrane. And we know that that means that there's a lot of what's called flip-flop transmigration of these hydrophobic lipids. Upon the hydrolysis, which is the catalytic mechanism for the acid sphingomyelinase, the removal of that phosphorylcholine likely increases the access of that lipid to the buried prenal lipid, which is essentially cholesterol found in the membrane. Now that allows now this formation of a membrane raft. So ceramides can retrograde traffic to the trans-Golgi network. So on the Golgi membrane, ceramides then recruit the pomidylated proteins, such as SNAP23 and LIN, the two that they focused on in this paper. And, they, and, the, and that raft then facilitates the transport of those pomidylated proteins out of the TGN and basically into the plasma lemma. So when ASM is inactivated, both SNAP23 and LIN are trapped in the trans-Golgi network due to a lack of ceramides, which end up on the Golgi membrane. So therefore, they seem to be essential for the transport of those pomidylated proteins. So ASM localized within that plasma membrane sets the poise for ready and reversible regulation via extracellular growth factors and cell attachment, and indeed even pH. Therefore, it establishes an event ontology of in situ functional modulation of plasma membrane, trans-Golgi network dynamics to govern cell signaling and intracellular Golgi transport processes in what I'm calling a temporally and spatially controlled uh, sequence of events. Okay. So we're at that point. Now recall, we were talking about how in T lymphocytes, upon activation of, of naive T lymphocytes, you get glycolysis going to lactic acid synthesis early on. And then over time, there's a derepression of the pyruvate dehydrogenase because of a lack of pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase activity, which allows for the carbon that came from glucose to enter into the mitochondria and then, of course, be metabolized either to oxaloacetic acid or acetyl-CoA via the enzymes pyruvate carboxylase and pyruvate dehydrogenase, respectively. Remember all of that. Now I want you to remember and think about the glycolytic pathway. Recall that the rate determining locus for glycolysis usually centers around phosphofructokinase 1. And of course, that enzyme is allosterically regulated, particularly by fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. And we told you by multiple mono and dinucleotides, including AMP and ADP. And those tend to promote the activity while inhibition is inhibited by, I mean, excuse me, is affected by citric acid, which comes from the, side, uh, from the mitochondria, once in the cytosol, because glycolysis is cytosolic. The glycerol 3-phosphate, phosphoenolpyruvate, and indeed high concentrations of ATP. That actually is called the respiratory control mechanism over PFK1 in the classical biochem literature. Now, this is important to keep in mind for something new. 
The critical micellar concentration of non-physiological concentrations of short chain or medium chain free fatty acids moderately were shown to inhibit the maximum velocity of phosphofructokinase 1. But these were non-physiological concentrations greater than 100 micromolar. And these are short chain and medium chain. So from octanate to lauric acid. So these are non-physiological, but these are early on observations in the literature. Now let's go into some really um, beautifully finessed detail here. There is a potent and reversible inhibition of PFK1 by long chain acyl coas. And it's due to the acylation of PFK1 by an enzyme which will transfer the palmitate from palmitoyl-CoA onto four specific cysteine residues. These are going to be thioesters now of, of a fatty acid, right? And that's how you're going to inhibit PFK1. And it's a reversible process and it's potent, as I said. And it just happens to be cysteine 114, 170, 351, and 577. So there's a covalent acylation of PFK1, and it's carried out by the enzyme called APT, which is uh, protein, uh, acyl protein transferase 1. So protein palmitylation is a dynamic post-translational modification where specifically 16-carbon fatty acid palmitate is added to cysteines of proteins to modulate protein sorting, targeting, and indeed, of course, the function which is signaling. Palmitate removal from proteins is mediated by another protein called acyl protein thioesterases. Okay? And although they're initially identified as lysophospholipases, there's evidence now is that these APT1 and APT2 are actually just enzymes that mediate the depalmidylation of a diverse group of proteins, which are basically cellular substrates for the enzyme. And what they've described is there are conserved functions of ATP, APT1 and APT2 across multiple um, domains of organisms, okay? So multiple families and multiple species of organisms. So it seems to be a common motif to have enzymes that specifically will depalmitylate certain enzymes, and in particular, PFK1, thus regulating glycolysis, you see? All right. Now, that little bit about these APT enzymes comes from a paper published in Biochemical Society Transactions in 2015, and yes, I'll put it in the show notes, but it will be up behind a paywall. So, acylation of PFK is not obligatory for inhibition of enzymatic activity, obviously, because allosterically controlled. But what it's believed to occur is that it increases the affinity of the enzyme for the membrane. Which membrane? Likely the plasma lemma. So palmitylation is a known mechanism for the binding of proteins in general to membranes. And the results indicate that PFK1 membrane binding is actually regulated by the level of acyl-CoAs. And of course, that's mediated by the acylation of the enzyme that we just mentioned. So the concentration of acyl-CoAs becomes important because their mod the concentration in cells modulated by fatty acid uptake, by thioesterification, and ultimately also what other metabolic fate might occur, which of course would be uh, beta oxidation or acyl lipid synthesis. Right? 
So the concentration of acyl-CoAs are in turn modulated by those processes and acyl-CoAs, as well as its non-hydrolyzable analogs, will induce, indeed, a conformational change in PFK1. Uh, and that can facilitate its association with calmodulin, which, of course, is known to regulate PFK1. That's um, one of the classical uh, modulators. So that means that a non if a non-hydrolyzable analog of acyl-CoAs work, as well as acyl-CoAs changing conformation of the PFK1. That means that um, above and beyond the permethylation of the enzyme at four discrete cysteine residues, acyl-CoAs can also produce the right kind of conformational change of the protein itself, thus altering its regulation because it facilitates association with calmodulin. So you can add all this data together and say that you can identify an integrated biochemical network through which the glycolytic flux is regulated at a central branch point intermediate of lipid metabolism. So that means that cellular long-chain acyl-CoA concentrations are controlled by multiple interwoven metabolic pathways. At bottom up, we talked about in the lymphocytes. And some of those metabolic pathways that we've discussed at great length in authentic biochemistry are beta-oxidation and lipid synthesis, including esterification, oxygen esters as well as thioesters, right? And you also get hydrolysis, right, of the acyl-CoAs, which is also common. All of that integrates with multiple diverse roles for the acyl-CoAs and the lipid counterparts, such as glycerolipids and sphingolipids, in cellular bioenergetics and as well as signaling. So the regulation of PFK1 by its direct interaction with acyl-CoA therefore has multiple downstream sequelae, uh, including alterations in catalytic activity. For example, glycolytic flux has changed, as we just mentioned. Subcellular localization and interactions with cellular regulatory proteins, as we just mentioned, calmodulin. All right. So... The, this paper suggests that fatty acyl-CoAs regulate PFK1 activity through nucleotide allosteric site of the enzyme because magnesium ATP and magnesium AMP, but not MAG-ATP, were found to significantly protect the enzyme from this non-hydrolyzable inter intermediate, which is this S-hexadecyl-CoA. So that means that long-chain fatty acyl-CoAs inhibit PFK1 under energy replete, that is low AMP ADP, and you know that means AMP kinase will be turned on, but not deficient, which would be high AMP to high ADP conditions. Okay, so low AMP to ADP ratios means that you have sufficient amount of energy charge to be carrying out metabolism, but still lower amounts of ATP, but when you have really deficient amounts of ADP and ATP, excuse me, and that's detected by having an I AMP to ADP ratio, this is when the cell is protected from pathological conditions because it mimics or phenocopies ischemia and hypoxia, where of course anaerobic glycolysis is accelerated by acyl-CoA levels. Okay. So this is an entirely different phenomena, right, than what you normally think about when you think about the regulation of glycolysis. So high-fat feeding or lipid infusion results in increasing the intracellular fatty acyl-CoA concentration, for example, in skeletal muscle. 
because you have a CD36 transporter for skeletal muscle, which means it will take it from lipoproteins, right, directly out of the serum. We also know that pharmacological inhibition of lipolysis reduces serum-free fatty acid and intracellularly fatty acyl-CoA concentrations, right? So an increased utilization of fatty acids is going to impair multiple points of glucose metabolism, including inhibition of uptake, and that's at the level of GLUT4 in the skeletal muscle, glucose phosphorylation at the level of the enzyme hexokinase, and using uh, C13NMR, it was discovered that fatty acids are likely acting primarily on glucose uptake and the initial phosphorylation of glucose, the, ones, two, the two choke points we just mentioned. And there is a profound decrease in insulin-induced lactate production in the presence of palmitic acid. Now, that's interesting, right? This is in muscle tissue. So importantly, levels of glucose 6-phosphate induced by insulin are also found to be increased in the presence of palmitate. So substantial increases in insulin-induced glycogen synthesis and the pentose phosphate pathway flux are also observed in the presence of palmitic acid. Although palmitate did not alter insulin-stimulated analog 2-deoxyglucose uptake. So there's multiple levels of regulation here is what this paper is telling us. So the inhibition of PFK1 by fatty acyl-CoA and the subsequent reversal of inhibition by cellular thioesterases probably represents a previously unrecognized mechanism uh, through which glycolysis and indeed mitochondrial beta-oxidation seem to be coordinatedly regulated. Now, this is the skeletal muscle paper. Major cytosolic myocardial lysophospholipase was originally purified from rabbit myocardium, identified as both a lysophospholipase and indeed has activity as an acyl-CoA hydrolase. So workers had demonstrated that that enzyme also has an acyl protein thioesterase activity, which is the APT. And of course, that catalyzed the removal of palmitate. And what they discovered in the paper that uh, is being cited here is it removed palmitate from, um, from thioester connection to a G protein, uh, G protein cysteine residue. So what that particular earlier study had demonstrated was that APT1 can indeed remove palmitate from acylated PFK1 and from G proteins. And that PFK1 activity could be rescued by this APT1. Okay. So that means that you need to remove that palmitic acid for PFK1 to be totally active, which is the whole point of the regulation. That's the key feature I want you to that you need to take home uh, this evening. Okay, that's the most important point of this is that palmitylation of PFK1 makes the protein inactive because it targets it to the plasma membrane. Okay, that's essentially the most important. Uh, uh, discussion for, or, or for the most important point of this discussion. Now, I want to take you back a little bit to the Journal of Molecular and Cellular Medicine published back in 2014. I'll put this paper in the show notes too. It talks about cup-shaped lipoprotein structures called porosomes. Now, porosomes are universally, un, universally used as secretory portals at that plasma membrane. And the Porosome itself is where secretory vesicles transiently dock and fuse 
to release their intravesicular contents. Now, why am I talking about this? Because that's where we are at the membrane. Now, what a little bit more about the porosome. There are at least 10,000 different lipid molecular species in the porosome. That's correct. 10,000 different ones. And these are model porosomes, but that are isolated from, you know, living, living tissues, from cells from living tissues. Now, lipids, of course, are a major class of biomolecules involved in almost everything with cellular structure and function. So it's not surprising. Here, we're probably talking about some cellular compartmentalization and membrane fission and fusion as being key mechanisms being involved for the pores on the function. So this cup-shaped lipoprotein structure is present in all cell plasma membranes, including T lymphocytes. And it's where the secretory vesicles will transiently dock and they're going to fuse at the base. This is gonna be on the inner leaflet and then release the contents to the outside by transmigrating through that membrane. So the fusion of the membrane-bound secretory vesicle at the porosome base is mediated by calcium. And that's why calmodulin is significant from the last paper we just covered just a few minutes ago. And of course, a specialized set of several different proteins, all of which are N-ethylmalamide sensitive factor attachment protein receptors. And all of those are called, for short, snares, S-N-A-R-E's, okay? And ethylmalamide sensitive factor attachment proteins, okay? And they're receptors, so that's why the R's and snares. Now, in neurons, for example, target membrane proteins like SNAP25 and Syntaxin1A are called T snares, and they're present at the base of that neuronal porosome. And a synaptic vesicle associated membrane protein or V-snare, this is gonna be the part of the vesicle now, are essentially forming a composite structure as a conserved protein complex, which is gonna be involved in membrane fusion. And in this particular cell type, neurotransmission. So you get synaptic vesicle fusion at the base of the porosome that leads to neurotransmitter release at that neural terminal. And in the presence of NSF, T-snare, and V-snare, you get no complex formation. Now, what is NSF? That's the soluble N-ethylmalamide sensitive factor, which is essentially an ATPase. And what it does, the reason it, it, it knocks down this synaptic vesicle fusion to the membrane, this ATPase called NSF disassembles the T slash V snare complex in the presence of ATP. And that's what drives, it's essentially a molecular motor, right? So that is really interesting, right? So you've got this whole other system functioning beyond what I just told you, okay? Beyond what I just explained to you, what's going on with PFK1, you've got this active system of the, end, of the endocytosis processing, which requires a porosome with not a few different lipid species, but 10,000 different molecular species, right? And so that's why I emphasize when you get into lipid biochemistry, you're not talking about 20 amino acids to make proteins, right? You're not talking about, oh, uh, a small handful, maybe half a dozen different carbohydrates 
to describe all the carbohydrate metabolism in mammalian systems. No, with, and with nucleotides, you're talking four or five different species of nucleotides, right? Lipids, you've got 10,000 different molecular species just within this porosome complex, carrying out all of the synaptic fusion that I just talked about. That's an example I gave you. But also just in general, the docking mechanism on how translocating um, endosomal compartmentalization from the Golgi, the trans-Golgi network, to move through the plasma membra, membrane is facilitated because of these lipid interactions. Okay. And that they're using things like cal calcium and calmodulin, which are component of the membrane raft regulation of PFK1, palmitylated and targeted plasma membrane to tune down glycolysis. That's why lipid metabolism, when you get dyslipidemia, like an overloading of fatty acids in the system from high levels of circulating lipoproteins, can wreak havoc on normal metabolism intracellularly and ultimately change gene expression and lead to things like either apoptosis or sometimes even cell proliferation, okay, or a termination of differentiation. So you get the idea now how lipids can interact with the metabolic pathway grid in a cell and then ultimately alter all of the signaling from that tissue bed. I'm going to stop here because we're out of time. Hopefully that was interesting for you. That's a lot of lipid metabolism. We're going to do a lot more. This is Dr. Dan Guerra saying uh, from Authentic Biochemistry on the 2nd of January, 2021. Bye for now.